1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us at the podcast. I just spoke with Douglas Clark about his new book, Gunboat Justice British and American Law Courts in China and Japan, 1842. To 1943. This was published in three volumes by Earnshaw Books in 2015. Now, there's a wealth of information in this chronologically organized history of extraterritoriality in East Asia. What the book does is it chronicles the story and some of the most kind of interesting and uh, really spirited characters in that story from 1842, um, which is where the first volume starts, to 1943, which is where the third volume ends. Now along um, that route, there are 13 parts um, with lots of chapters within those parts that take us into um, what by all accounts, as you'll hear in a moment, uh, were the very, very different um, processes and trajectories by which this history of extraterritoriality played out in the different places um, that Doug chronicles. And you'll hear him talking in a moment specifically about the differences in the context of China and Japan um, and the modern or rather contemporary resonance of those differences for um, how he understands the relationship between China and Japan to look today. So it's a really fascinating story um, for anyone interested in the history of law and legality, um, extraterritoriality, international relations in this period. Um, It's a really, really interesting read. And so I'll let you get to it. And as always, thank you so much for your support and for listening um, to us here at the podcast. So enjoy. um, And thanks again. I'm here today to talk with Douglas Clark about his new three-volume book, Gunboat Justice. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Doug, and thanks so much for being with me today, for getting up early, and for navigating the time difference. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to talking.
0: Well, thanks very much, Carla, and I'm looking forward to talking with you as well.
1: Great. So, Doug, let's start um, with the question that is traditional for the channel, very, very broad. What brought you to... Chinese studies. How did you come to work on the study of East Asia and um, China and Japan, actually, in particular?
0: Well, actually, I, I started with Japan. Um, I'm from Australia. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, they started offering Japanese. Actually, they didn't start. They were offering it when I went to high school, Japanese as a course uh, many years ago, probably. Ahead of most other Western countries, um, I studied Japanese in high school. Um, and then in year 11, that's when I was 16, I got a scholarship to go and study in Colbert um, in Japan at a Japanese high school. Um, and I went on exchange there. I stayed with a Japanese family for a year. Um, from that, I then studied Japanese at university. I, I also went back to Japan for half a year as a working holiday maker. Um, then, when I was studying Japanese at university, um, I decided I'd like to study Chinese as well. Um, how I ended up doing that was uh, I had been travelling in a gap year before university and I did come to China uh, in 1986. In fact, I came to Hong Kong 1985, spent New, year, New Year's Eve here and then uh, I went on to uh, China and that piqued my interest in studying Chinese as well. So I ended up studying both Japanese and Chinese at university. Um, I then... Uh, thought uh, I'd like to really learn Chinese properly, so I ended up uh, getting another scholarship to go and study in Shanghai uh, for two years at Fudan University, where I studied Chinese for the first year, then I studied in the law faculty in Chinese for the next year. Um, That was the very interesting time of uh, 1989, so I was studying just after Tiananmen in the law faculty, Um, uh, a very interesting time to be at university in China.
1: Now, the full title of the book that we're talking about, or the the set of three books or three volumes that make up this publication, is Gunboat Justice, British and American Law Courts in China and Japan, 1842 to 1943. Now, at the end of the third volume of the book, you talk about a meeting at the Customs House. On the Bund in Shanghai in April 2011, that ultimately planted the seed for the project. So, yep. Doug, can you talk a little bit about um, about that moment and about how you came to the project and came to decide to write a book length object about this particular issue?
0: Okay, just a step before the customs house meeting is um, I practiced as a lawyer in Shanghai for 11 years. Um, uh, Intellectual property is actually what I do mainly, but I practiced in Shanghai for 11 years, and uh, at the end of 2010, I I left the big law firm that I was practicing at, deciding to become a barrister, Um, and uh, in early 2011, I was doing what's called a pupillage, so even though I'd practiced law for... 18 years I had to become a pupil again. Um, and uh, that gave me a lot of time to be doing other things and, um, At that point, I had a meeting with Shanghai Customs. It was about um, uh, something to do with the uh, European Union uh, Chamber of Commerce Intellectual Property Group that I was a member of. Um, I won't go into those details, but it's a beautiful building. It was the first time I got to go inside, and what's actually very interesting inside that building is they still have a lot of photos of the old um, Imperial Maritime Customs time up on the walls, and the, 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 the rooms are you know, as they were when that was the actual uh, uh, foreign customs house uh, in Shanghai. So, And that's a beautiful building. If anyone knows Shanghai, it's right on the Bund. Um, but next door to the customs house is another equally beautiful building, probably actually more beautiful building, the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Um, and or what used to be the Hong Kong-Shanghai Bank. It's now the Pudong Development Bank. Um, And if you go into that building, you can see the old banking hall, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, If you look up at the entrance, you can see the roof, which shows where HSBC used to operate Um, around the world. There's little engravings in the roof in tiles, and so there's Mumbai or Bombay as it was in those days, Hong Kong, Shanghai, London, uh, I think New York and a, and a couple other cities all beautifully uh, tiles that sort of display these cities. But what and, and where the story started uh, for Gumbo Justice is if you look up at the entrance of the building, there's actually a plaque uh, when this... Uh, uh, HSBC headquarters opened in 1923, and it lists various people who were there, which included um, the uh, Commander-in-Chief of the China Station, the Chief Justice of Hong Kong, uh, a U.S. Army representative, um, the Chief Inspector of Salt Revenue, who was British, um, and uh, various other great people. Um, but what really interested me was... Uh, on that list of people was a gentleman called Sir Skinner Turner, um, the judge of uh, HBM Supreme Court for China, um, and I saw that. And you know, I'd studied East Asian history at university along with the languages, and I had. At the time, hadn't thought I'd ever heard of the Supreme Court for China. So it's not the Supreme Court of China, but the Supreme Court for China. Um, and that really piqued my interest because I thought, well, what's this? I'd been looking for something to do because having left my job where I was working long, long hours and now being a pupil, I didn't have much to be doing. I'd always wanted to write a, a book about China. Um, uh, this piqued my interest. Uh, I did some research and found that no one had really written, uh, a book about, uh, the British Supreme court for China. Um, there is an excellent book about the United States court China. I'm, I'll mention a little bit later on now uh, by, uh, Eileen Scully. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll write a book about this, um, literally after having looked at it. And so, uh, I then contacted my publisher, Graham Earnshaw, who, um, Uh, publishes sort of uh, boutique books on China, uh, said, uh, would you be interested? He said, absolutely, that'd be fantastic. Um, And so with that uh, encouragement, I I started the research uh, to write about this. Now, uh, it was uh, a long journey, much longer than I expected. I hope to write it faster, but extremely interesting. Um, And uh, the result was, in fact, I was hoping to sort of do a very short book with uh, an introduction. I did do actually do a first draft, which is much, much shorter. Um, but at Graham's encouragement, he asked me to really dig into how extraterritoriality, which is what this book is eventually about, um, impacted on the lives of Chinese and Japanese and how it impacted on the relations with the, those countries. So um, that's how the story started. Um, And uh, as I said, there was very little information. So uh, I sort of, as you always do, you start on the internet. Um, There was uh, nothing about the British Supreme Court itself. Um, uh, There was a couple of mentions of some of the judges um, uh, who uh, had been judges of the court that they had been a judge, but not much more than that. Um, So I had to really go into primary sources to try and dig that up, Um, and. The first place I started was the um, old newspapers, I don't know if you know uh, the library in Xu Jiahui um, in uh, Shanghai. It's uh, the old Catholic church library um, next to the church in uh, Xu Jiahui. They call themselves the Sikawei, which is a Shanghainese for, for Xu Jiahui. I went down there where they have all the old North China Heralds, um, North China Daily News, China Press, various other newspapers, and quite literally just asked for a copy of some newspapers and um, to my surprise found um, in the North China Herald um, – of each issue that comes out, used to come out weekly or, or biweekly, um, law reports um, uh, from the British Supreme Court for China, United States Court for China, um, some of the other consular courts. Uh, and these were not just your basic law report of uh, a case, but um, particularly in the earlier years, uh, the, the, the 19th century and early 20th century, full transcripts of cases um, uh, that were heard by the courts. And so uh, from that I was able to um, get my basic material to write up this history. Um, uh, That's how it started. Um, And uh, then the other thing that really um, helped me then write the book was um, uh, I discovered the National Archives in London um, had the – Old files of the court um, and how that came about um, is absolutely amazing story of 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 just you know, how sometimes by pure luck things end up being um, uh, kept when they probably would have normally been thrown away, um, and how that came about was at the end of World War uh, sorry at the beginning of World War uh, Two uh, the court, which is part of the consulate building, was occupied by the Japanese. All the files were stored away there. Um, They were kept in the consulate after the Cultural Revolution. They weren't taken away. The uh, Red Guards occupied the consulate during the Cultural Revolution, but obviously told not to destroy anything. And when uh, Britain and China uh, reopened economic relations in 1984, China put all these files um, on a boat and sent them back to the UK, Um, and they were put in the archives. So I was able to get the original Really, literally, original letters between uh, the judges and uh, and other judges, or um, sometimes with parties, and go through those files. There's uh, 256 boxes in wow. queue.
1: Wow. So you talk a little, you've talked a little bit already about stuff. Some- um, mm hmm. So you. So no. you- Sorry, go on.
0: No, no, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, you you talked um, a little bit already about some of the kind of formative sources for the project, right? Newspapers, um, these records at Q. Um, You also mention um, early on in the book the importance of travel to China and to Japan, um, to St. Petersburg, visiting courts, other field sites. So it seems like actual physical travel and sort of physicality of the spaces that you were in also um, seems to, at least um, from my perspective as a reader, been important um, in shaping the book. Could you speak a little bit to this larger issue? This is probably a good place to dig in. Aside from, or maybe even including the newspapers and these records, what for you were some of the most important and perhaps most striking of the sources in the source space that made up the book?
0: Um, I'll I'll talk about the traveling because that that was very important to me. Um, And I can tell the difference even when I uh, reread the book myself of when I've been to a place where something happened, um, I can tell the story so much better because I could picture in my mind what occurred um, much better. And then when you put it down in words, it, it comes out much better. Um, uh, for example, you know, a lot of cases occurred in Shanghai and if it involved physical um locations there's an example a case i talk about where some british policemen threw a chinese beggar in the river um i actually physically went out there to see the location on the river walk uh the route they'd been traveling um and just try and understand how this could have happened why would two it appears rational sane policemen just in cold blood kill some kill someone by throwing them in a freezing cold river um and i, I feel that that story came out much better from the visit. Uh, Another um, place which I thought was very important to visit was Yokohama, um, where a lot of the uh, events in Japan happened. Um, And just to be able to physically see where people did things uh, which is can, can still in yokohama just like shanghai um made it much easier to to write because i, I knew the distances i knew that there's a hill here i knew um uh how long it would have taken people to get places and while that's not necessarily all written down in the story it just helped me as a writer to um picture what happened in my head and then try and you know get that down in writing for the readers um so I did make a point of going quite a lot of places. I even went you know, to Human where the opium uh, was destroyed by Lin um, uh, 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 um all those years ago that sort of triggered the opium wars. I went to um, uh, Tangu in, in Tianjin where you have the uh, Dagu forts. Um, and uh, you know just to be able to stand over that entry to the river, which I'm sure many people have ridden, read about but not actually gone to see, um, gives a much better feeling of, of, of you know what it was like to fight wars in those times as well. Um, so I did make a point of going uh, where, wherever I can to, to see things. Um, and uh, another reason, in China, and this is actually comes to the, the sources points you're asking about, what I found is um, something that's quite common in China. If you go to museums on the sites, um, there's often extremely good information uh, good photographs um good write-ups, um, either in English or Chinese, of what occurred that you can't find in a book in China. Um, the censorship in China means that some of this stuff doesn't get written down in books, but the curators of museums seem to have more latitude to put on display and, and, and write about things at their actual museums. And that was particularly true of both the Opium War Museum in uh, Humen and the Dagu uh, Fort Museum in uh, Tianjin. Um, they both had excellent displays, absolutely excellent displays of uh, photographs, stories, and uh, they told the historical story very accurately, actually. I mean, obviously from a Chinese perspective, but very accurately, Um, and that helped me a lot as a a sort of base source um, for telling a, a story as I wrote it. Um, Then the other sources, and I've mentioned them already as newspapers, probably the the big thing for me, um, and uh, it comes out in the book, I believe, and it probably, if I I don't blame my own trumpet a little bit, um, wouldn't have come out from any other writer, well, not any other writer, but someone who has been a practicing lawyer in court. Um, I was able to go through the transcripts of cases um, and extract from it the stories that were told in those transcripts to then put them in words for a reader to read, uh, probably better than most other writers, just by the mere fact that I am a lawyer who does trials, um, and we read transcripts all the time as lawyers. It's one of our things that we have to do. Um, and I have seen other books written about you know, courtrooms, even about extraterritoriality, by other people who are fantastic writers, fantastic uh, uh, academics. have done fantastic research, but They miss some of the subtleties of what's going on in a courtroom um, from the transcripts because they don't necessarily understand the rules of evidence that have meant that certain things have been said in certain ways or why certain questions are asked or why certain arguments are made um, that uh, appear to a non-lawyer to to sort of – maybe be meaningless or even sometimes to be racist or, 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 or um, uh, lacking in any sensitivity to, to local people, but you know, sometimes lawyers have to do things like that. Um, and the ability to get the actual transcripts of cases and uh, read those transcripts um, also gave me a good feeling um, of course, I never could never meet any of these people because they've all long since left this world, but it gave me a good feeling about what the judges and lawyers were like because um, I could still, from the word, try and get a picture in my mind of what this person was like. Um, and the only thing I regret, I, I, I wrote a blog about this recently, but the only thing I, I regret in writing this book was I couldn't... Work out what accent most of these people had. Um, for example, the, the British judges, they came from Ireland, they came from Scotland, they came from England. Um, but particularly as anyone who, if, if you dealt with anyone from the British Isles, they all have such a wide variety of accents there. I mean, uh, one judge I wrote about in particular, um, Hiram Wilkinson, um, uh, he came from Belfast, but I would love to know if he, if he had a, Strong Irish accent, a, a soft Irish accent, or if he got rid of it altogether in his years um, in the Orient, um, because it, it would change how things happened depending on how he spoke and that 's the one thing that I regret I was not able to, to find out, um, uh, but I did find out of in relation to one defendant in these cases a lady I write about called Edith Carew who poisoned her husband in Yokohama um, leading to one of the uh, the biggest cases and the one case that you can still read about if you if you sort of just type in extraterritoriality you'll find always a mention of the Carew case because it was – Worldwide uh, news around the world because you have a beautiful young wife um, who was uh, 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 had a lover killing her husband who had various lovers and so it was all very seedy and sleazy and so uh, um, it led to a a trial in the British court for Japan you know before a a judge in wigs and red red gowns and barristers in their wigs, um, uh, but I did find that Edith Carew had um, a cut glass accent It was as it was described, um, which was fantastic to find out because it, and I wish I'd known it when I was writing the book because it... it puts that person in context a lot more I know you shouldn't judge people by how they talk but we all do Um, and it it gave me okay she was a very upper class snobby lady because if you speak like that you probably are um, and probably intimidated quite a lot of people in town um, which is why some people thought she was innocent probably even thought how could someone with this sort of um, upper class background and that wonderful accent have uh, both killed her husband and and, and taken lovers Um, so I was looking for every tiny little piece of information to try and um, add to the stories of the characters in the book, and I spent a lot of time, a lot of time researching the backgrounds to the judges and, and, and the lawyers and, and the main characters in the books um, to try and bring out a little bit about who they are, who they are, and why they were there, and how they decided cases because each judge is a, is, a, is a different type of human being and when you read the cases you know the results may be different sometimes depending on the personnel of that judge mm-hmm.
1: That's great thank you so much um, so we'll, and we're actually going to talk about some of those figures in a moment. So the story, um, as you tell us early on, began as a story only about British courts, but grew to encompass the American courts as well. And we'll talk a little bit about the significance of that transition um, when we get a little bit further into the books. Now. Um, It's organized chronologically, so just to give listeners a sense of the shape, um, the first volume takes us from 1842 to 1900, the second takes us from 1900 to 1927, and the third one goes from 1927 to 1943. Now, you explain, um, again, uh, early in the book, the genesis of the problem and its central problematic. Um, in uh, exactly in the introduction, I think to the first volume. But for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to become readers, let's kind of start at the beginning. Why extraterritoriality? I mean, you've already mentioned that as really the key or one of the key problematics throughout the book. Why is this such an important issue in modern international legal history in this context? Why does it merit devoting um, this many pages and this kind of a publication to that? Again, for listeners who haven't had the benefit of um, reading the book yet.
0: Okay, yeah, I think we, we go back to where did extraterritoriality come from and then that leads us to why is it still relevant today that this happened? Um, for the for- so going back to there, you know, China and Japan were both closed countries in the uh, early 19th century. So um, neither of them, um, the the China under the Qing or Japan under the Tokugawa shogunate, neither of them allowed foreign trade or foreign interaction, bar very limited trade in one city far away from the capital. So in China, you had Canton, where foreign traders were allowed to come in, Um, uh, for a few months a year uh, buy what they wanted to buy from China and sell what they wanted to sell to China Mm -hmm. but the Chinese didn't really want to buy very much so there's actually quite a large trade deficit Um, and uh, in the case of China the foreigners then started trying to sell opium which the Chinese didn't want to buy of course the government didn't want them to buy Um, and that led to the opium wars where Britain forced China to open. Um, just before I get onto that, uh, in Japan there was trade at Nagasaki, mainly by the Dutch in, in uh, the factories there, um, again, buying and selling things from China and Japan, and that was the limited access that was allowed um, in both countries. Um, the Japanese were slightly more open at once one context, is that they did actually have some Japanese who were allowed to um, interact with the foreigners and study um some of the foreign um sciences um, particularly medicine and things um they weren't as closed minded um put it that way as the chinese who really weren't interested in the foreigners at all or what they had to say um yeah so you had both countries closed to foreigners they couldn't come in um and the governments of both countries didn't want to deal with them um uh and so in 1840s, you know, China, in fact, actually 1839, um, the British were selling a lot of opium into China. Um, It was banned, and uh, I mentioned him already, Lin Zexu um, said, you know, we're going to ban this opium, and we're going to really stop you. Um, And he did. He seized a lot of opium, uh, locked the foreign traders into the uh, the factories in in Canton, Um, and this led to the uh, first British-China war, um, uh, or the first opium war, as it's now called. Uh, where Britain uh, waged quite a long campaign, actually. This is one thing people forget. It actually took two years because it's the old style of war where sailing ships coming out and and landing troops and capturing islands before you could sail on, but ultimately leading to them threatening to destroy Nanjing, um, Nanking as it was called in English at the time, um, uh, and leading to a treaty which allowed foreigners to trade at five treaty ports in China um and also ceding Hong Kong Island as a base for the British in China. Um the treaty ports were, were ports that were open to foreigners and they were called treaty ports because they were opened under the treaties. Um same thing happened to Japan a little bit later uh, in the 1850s with the Americans, in fact, going in and uh, opening it up with their um, Commodore Perry going over, uh, demanding that the shogunate uh, open up to trade. Um, there was no war. The Japanese were well aware of how successful the British had been in China. There was actually quite a few books written in Japan about uh, the opium wars and how uh, the foreigners had been able to quite comprehensively defeat um, China. Uh, so the shogunate capitulated very quickly. And, and agreed to open some treaty ports in, in Japan. Um, but both in both places, the idea there would be very small areas, enclaves, where the foreigners would be. Um, and in the treaties with China, um, uh, the British sort of said, well, we'll deal with our people and you deal with your people. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, your legal system is, is barbaric, so we'll deal with our people under our laws. And um, initially there was no opposition to this because um, uh, it made sense. You yeah. know, you're going to be in small enclaves. Hopefully you're just dealing with yourselves. We don't then even have to, you know, deal with you foreigners. You just... Um, deal with your own issues amongst yourselves and and, uh, from the Chinese perspective that was perfect Um, uh, and I think from the Japanese perspective and initially that's really what happened you had very small treaty ports, foreign traders would come in and out um, if they had problems um, uh, the local consul there's no real courts, um, a consul would base there who would deal with everything a consul would sit as a a judge and sentence people for for crimes Um, if they were serious enough they'd be sent off to Hong Kong for trial um, which created some problems um, I'll talk about in a second. Um, but extraterritoriality was this idea that you weren't subject to local law, but you were subject to your own law. Um, the extra, meaning uh, almost outside the territory, you're treated as if you're not in the territory, even though you are. Um, so uh, this, what is often called consular jurisdiction, because consuls would be the people who would try the cases, was established in both China and Japan, and, um, uh, for dealing with uh, cases. Um, and then, uh, and the, both criminal and civil cases. As trade grew, um, the need for judges grew. Um, the, the, the consuls would be quite busy dealing with issues. Um, people would kill each other. Um, kill each other meaning killing foreigners would kill other foreigners, and you know, they'd have to be uh, trials for murder and, and even death sentences imposed. Um, uh, and uh, in the British case, because Britain was the largest uh, country in China, um, eventually in eighteen sixty, well, in eighteen sixty-five, they established. The British Supreme Court for China and Japan in Shanghai. Um, And the name, the British Supreme Court for China and Japan, as it suggests, it gave it, meant that the court had jurisdiction over both. British people in both China and in Japan. Um, uh, And uh, the judges would try cases from both places. Um, They'd go on circuit around China and they'd go on circuit around Japan to try serious cases. The consular court stayed in place um, to deal with smaller cases in in each treaty port. Um, But uh, the the Supreme Court was an appellate court and would also try the more serious cases um, uh, against uh, foreigners. Um and this system had an amazing impact on Japan um, and less of an amazing impact on china it 's quite interesting The, the Japanese um, having been forced to open um, very, very rapidly. Changed. Initially, they opposed the foreigners just like China. Um, there's a couple of instances where, where foreigners are killed. Um, there's one instance where, where a foreigner was killed um, by a uh, member of the Satsuma clan, which is from Kagoshima, um, and... Uh, uh, the British demanded justice, uh, that the person be tried and, 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 and executed by the Japanese. Um, the Japanese refused to hand them over, so um, the British sailed down and basically destroyed Kagoshima with their um, gunboats. Of course, that's where the title, Gunboat Justice, comes from. Um, uh, it was the British gunboats that really backed this up. Um, but they destroyed Kagoshima. Um, there was also an incident in, in Shimonoseki because the emperor had actually not signed the treaty. The Shogunate. signed the treaty with um, America and then other foreign countries without reference to the emperor, the emperor at one point told um, other clans, kick the foreigners out, which they tried um, by blocking uh, the Straits at Shimonoseki. Again, the British, Americans, French and Dutch, uh, sent down their uh, their, their ships, um, very easily destroyed the uh, cannon, um, landed troops and held Shimonoseki to ransom. This triggered for the Japanese um, in Western Japan, who, who were, quite martial people originally, um, a realisation that they weren't going to beat these foreigners um, as the country was at the moment and that they had to reform. And it led to a civil war. Um, which very few people know about, the Japanese Civil War, but it was a very important part in history. Um, That civil war led to the reformers from Western Japan defeating the shogunate, um, and in the classic Japanese understatement, the shogunate was allowed to return power to the emperor, um, but the emperor became more of a figurehead emperor uh, in the British style of a monarch, um, and the government uh, was made up of reformers below that. And they looked to the west to strengthen themselves very much, and uh, uh, both militarily, economically, and legally, um, uh, changed the the whole face of the country. Um, they introduced a Western-style legal system, and extraterritoriality. The foreign courts operating in their country were. Um, very important references for them. They could look at how foreigners dealt with things, not by going off to study them overseas, but by actually seeing how they operated. Um, Extraterritoriality in the end, um, towards the end of the 1890s, became a huge impetus for for Japan to change its legal system because um, uh, the Japanese had wanted to get rid of the foreigners having special rights in their country, and the foreigners would say, well, we're not going to do that um, while your legal system um, is remains a barbaric form of uh, uh, legal system. So it gave a lot of impetus to to, to Japan to modernize and westernize its legal system, which they did, leading to them um, by the 1890s being able to reach agreements to end extraterritoriality in Japan, and they all came into force at the very end of the century. (laughs) That was Japan. China, on the other hand, went the exact opposite way. Um, The Qing dynasty was already weak, of course, uh, by the mid 18. Uh, uh, 19th century, so by the 1840s when when the Opium Wars happened, and, and it got weaker. Um, and it can never be forgotten that the Qing were foreigners. They were the Manchus from Manchuria. Um, they probably quite rightly realised if they reformed, sought to reform their government they would probably be kicked out um, in in revolutions and there were a number of rebellions at the time um, and ultimately it did prove right that reform led to the end of the the Qing. So the Qing resisted foreigners had fought a lot of wars um, and never modernised in the whole time well tried to modernise but never did any serious attempts at modernization of either the economy, the legal system or or anything else uh, leading to a weaker and weaker China and China and, and foreigners taking more and more rights. Um, each war that they fought with China um, would re- lead to more treaty ports being open, the rights for foreigners to do more to travel in China, further um, to, to trade more of China, to, to um, eventually to, to to start manufacturing in China. Um, and this went on uh, all the way through the Qing Dynasty. Uh, Then the Qing collapsed uh, and you had Yuan Shikai come to power. Uh, But then you ended up with another 15 years of of what's now called warlordism with no strong central government, uh, allowing an extraterritoriality suited uh, helped the foreigners very much in that context because um, uh, they looked after themselves um, in their enclaves, and 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 you know, no Chinese government um, of the various governments was willing to fight the foreigners at the time. So, um, a weak China actually helped the foreigners, and and they 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 grew. Um, it was only actually once the Dung got militarily strong, there was a serious challenge to uh, foreign rights in China and very quickly foreigners were, were willing to give up their rights as the Dung established legal systems and, and, and power. Um, and in fact, by 1930s... Um, there were draft treaties in place to abolish extraterritoriality, um, but never happened because, and this is where it comes to the modern world, because while China was now growing militarily strong in the in, in the 1920s, Japan was far stronger because they'd started the reform so much earlier. And uh, by 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria and occupied it, setting up a, a, a puppet government there. Um, and then, of course, in 1937, they occupied the whole of whole of um, uh, the eastern seaboard of China um, in any event. Uh, And that was, Japan was able to do that because they had reformed much earlier than than China become militarily and economically strong. And a lot of that economic strength came from the fact that they developed a Western legal system far ahead of China, um, which allowed the the economy to, to, to grow, which they could then fund their military expansionism. So, why is this relevant today, the extraterrestrial? Well, it's not necessarily the direct link to the legal systems that were created, but it is a direct link to the um, changes that were forced on both countries. But the fact that Japan reformed earlier made them stronger, gave them the strength to um, be able to invade China. And to this day, the Chinese... Um, cannot forget that. Um, uh, It's amazing that they have a memory of everything going back to the 1940s, but nothing of more modern history of the things that happened. But, you know, Xi Jinping, um, as part of his now current uh, uh, policies, uh, has a strong anti-Japanese propaganda that comes out. Um, uh, Last year, we had the... An actual parade to celebrate the 17th year of the victory over Japan. Um, it's become a very strong part of the, stronger part of, of the, the, the message from the Communist Party of, um, we were the ones who beat Japan, um, and that's why you need to have a strong, uh, leader in power and a strong party in power. So for the Chinese um, the, as they call it, the century of humiliation which started in 1842 running up to um, 1945 when, when Japan was defeated um, is a huge part of their current uh, thinking and the whole history of extraterritoriality where foreigners did basically do what they liked in China backed up by their gunboats um, An rally was the day-to-day humiliation of that century of humiliation. Chinese officials could not do anything to uh, stop foreigners entering their country or to even punish them when they broke laws. All they could do is hand them over to their own officials um, for punishment. Um, is that, that whole era is used um, to uh, justify the current need for one party government and a strong party so that, Foreigners cannot come back and split China, um, and yeah. You know, so when the and to be fair, at least the Chinese on this respect. When you do hear them talking about this, you know that because uh, you hear it all the time. Foreigners are, are trying to split China, or foreigners are trying to destroy our system, or you know, Um It is based on historical fact. It's not that they're making it up, um, and I and I try to tell that story in my book that you know we did treat. We foreigners, meaning British, Americans, Canadians, Japanese, um, did treat China appallingly, um, and uh, they haven't forgotten it, while many of us have, um, unfortunately. So I hope that readers who read my book will, will get a, a much better idea of what how foreigners actually lived in China in the past. Um, it wasn't just that we were happily sort of living in Shanghai and these other treaty ports um, uh, and everything, you know, went on wonderfully. It wasn't that Shanghai, for example, was a colony. Um, some people think, well, okay, somehow it was like Hong Kong or a colony. It wasn't. It was Chinese territory. Um, Strangely, there were 19 courts operating in China, in Shanghai um, at the peak of extraterritoriality. Uh, British, American, um, uh, German, French, Austro-Hungarian, Mexican and and various other countries. And so all the foreigners there were subject to their own laws and not to Chinese law. Um, Which, if you think about today, is just crazy. You're in BC. Imagine if Chinese in, in BC had to be tried in a Chinese court, rather than in the, uh, the Canadian court. It's just, it just, it's, it's, it's just amazing system when you think about it in, in, in the modern world.
1: Yes. So, th- so thank you so much um, for that really detailed explanation, and I think it really helps to put everything into context. Um, there's so much right that comes out of the fabric of the storytelling that gets us from the very earliest kind of messy stages of extraterritoriality down to the end of the story where we um, kind of step back and reflect on the very different ways that extraterritoriality and its histories played out in China and Japan and in other places um, in East Asia, as you've just, I think, really nicely summed up. Now, throughout that, um, throughout the pages um, that intervene between the beginning and the end, there's, a, there's such a strong thread of stories and storytelling. I mean, it's just, um, it's an account not just of this happened and that happened, but it's an account of some really fascinating figures um, who had really interesting lives, and they just kind of burst off the page um, in really, really interesting ways. I mean, one of my favorites, and I mentioned this um, before we started recording, um, occurs uh, toward the beginning-ish of the book. Um, This is somebody um, named Sir Edmund Hornby, who you describe as, by all accounts, a man's man who was sent to establish a British Supreme Court for China and Japan in Shanghai, and at one point, and this is why, um, this is uh, one of my favorite moments, at one point he claims to have met a ghost and, like, asks the ghost if it's drunk. And it's just this really funny moment. But in yeah. any case, this brings us to the larger issue of um, the the really fascinating figures um, and characters, historical characters that come out of the book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to, yeah, ask you to talk about, um, for you, the importance of uh, the kind of storytelling craft and the way that the book has emerged and whether there are any um, particular moments or characters that stand out as particularly, um, favorites for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, this is actually probably one of the reasons why the book is so long. I mean, um, it comes in three volumes. I think it's just under 300,000 words. Um, uh, which was not the original intention. I originally intended to write something shorter and had a history in about fifty to 60,000 words. Um, but this is one of the things um, I'm very thankful to my publisher, Graham, for. He said, you've got to tell a story here. Um, at the moment, he, he didn't use his words because he's British and very polite, but it's too boring when he's looking at my first draft. <laughs> Um, and I had found these characters, and I, I'd found them very interesting. But you know, I, I'm trying to keep to certain length. But but with that, I then decided um, I wanted to tell this story by bringing to life the main characters in the books, which was all the judges, um, as far as I could, um, and some of the lawyers, and where I could um, defendants, um, and. The judges were the easiest because a lot more was written about them, um, particularly in those days. Um, I actually lament now um the loss of the sort of written press um, and investigative journalism. You know, in Shanghai in particular, there was a very active press and the courts were a very important part of the community. Um, you know, quite literally in some cases, uh, I, I, I you know, found articles about one of the judges' wives mentioning that she was always late for dinner on things like the things you could never find out about a judge's wife now. Um, but also the, the 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 newspapers are willing to be extremely critical um, uh, of of judges you know complaining about them writing uh, judgments taking too long to write judgments or um, commenting on their personalities, including particularly Hornby, who you just mentioned um, and so I was able to get a lot of information about the judges from that um, You have to do. Some digging, and you have to look around. You can't just look at one viewpoint, um, as, as any historian knows. Um, and you've got to look for clues sometimes because, um, for example, another judge who came out with Hornby at the same time was an absolute genius. His name was Charles Goodwin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was a genius. Um, he was an Egyptologist. You can actually still find a bust of him at the uh, museum in Cairo. You know, he deciphered hieroglyphics. Um, everyone loved him. He was apparently a you know, fantastic conversationalist, a wonderful companion. Um, and so no one really wrote anything bad about him. It Except, of course, in his obituary where um, they had to sort of say, well, it's a shame that uh, uh, another position couldn't have been found for him more adapted to his ability than being a judge in Shanghai, which sounds very nice. When you actually think about it, they're saying he was a terrible judge, um, which I think he was. But uh, again, this is where the lawyer in me was able to then go and confirm that because you go and find the transcripts of cases and he would just take ages to deal with everything. You know, a short, what should be a short case would be a long case. He'd want to investigate everything and he'd be asking questions and and um, that sounds good to a layman, but for a lawyer it can be uh, quite a nightmare because, you know, um, judges should decide things relatively quickly. Now... Goodwin was a junior judge to Hornby, who just mentioned Hornby was the exact opposite. Um, and he's a, a, almost more of a night, nightmare of a judge, what we call the smartest person in the room these days, um, the type of judge who wouldn't even bother listening to a lawyer. He'd already made up his mind and, and, and he'd say so. Um, he was a force of nature. Um, I, I say that in the book. Uh, absolutely amazing man. Um, just could, uh, obviously very, very, very smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, very clever, but with uh, a personality that would just not. <laughs> tolerate people um, challenging his authority, which was actually very important in why he was chosen to come out and set up these courts. People didn't want a strong court system uh, when he first came out. I think they were quite happy with the sort of consular court system that was relatively weak. But Hornby came out said, I'm the judge, I'm in charge, um, I'm going to be trying cases and I'm going to be, you know, I, I need resources and I need things, and he, um, he got them. As you mentioned, he was a slightly eccentric. I mean, his story of, of seeing a ghost is Cited everywhere in this world um, by people who believe in ghosts um, as what greater authority can you have than a chief justice saying that he saw a ghost? And what's amazing about it, he was happy to publish it and defend it. When people wrote to challenge it, he wrote back to newspapers saying, no, this is what happened. He wasn't the sort of guy to, to, to say, oh. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a judge, I, I'm a chief justice, let me hide the fact I saw a ghost because people think I'm crazy. No, he was more than happy to publish it and publicize it and say this is what happened. Um, and the main criticism came of him was that um, uh, uh his date seemed to be wrong because he said he saw it at a certain date and, and, and uh, his wife was in bed with him, um, but they said, well, you weren't married at the time because he'd had three wives. Unfortunately, two of them died um, and said, y- y- um, your wife it couldn't have happened when you said it happened because you weren't married at the time. How can you have been in bed with your wife? Um, and then Hornby had to sort of fudge that. I suspect maybe he was in bed with the lady who became his wife, um, a much younger girl. She was 35 years younger than him. He was, I think, 55, and she was 20 at the time. But, of course, he could never admit that um, in, in, in those days. Um, uh, but anyhow, he was, he was an amazing character. Um, he, he went around China um, forcing uh, consuls and, and, and other people to accept the authority of the Supreme Court, particularly the Customs Service, which was run by British, um, but it was China. Chinese uh, government body who sort of tried, uh, Robert to Robert Hart tried to avoid being placed under the authority of the Supreme Court, but the judges said, "No way! You, you, your British people in in the Customs service are subject to the British court, and the Americans are subject to to the American courts." Um. So, uh, it was um, uh, uh, it was. Great to have the time to to dig in and try and bring these characters to life. A couple of judges I was able to find more information than others. Um, Another one that I, I spent a lot of time digging into. In fact, this came towards the end of the book because I was looking for another theme to tie things together, and there was a father and son, I've mentioned them already, um, Hiram Wilkinson, um, Hiram Shaw Wilkinson, and Hiram Parks Wilkinson. Uh, Wilkinson came out to Japan in 1864 as a student interpreter, learned Japanese, um, and rose eventually to become the Chief Justice in Shanghai, having been the Crown Advocate in China. Um, So his career spanned 40 years. Um, And then his son came out in the 1890s and stayed through to 1930 um, uh, with a short time back in Ireland, again another 40 years. So this father and son's um, time acting before the British court um, covered almost the whole period that I was writing about. Um, And luckily... um, Particularly the father's papers. There's some of the sons, but mainly the father's papers have been kept in Ireland, in uh, Belfast, at the Public Record Office there. So I spent two days in the Public Record Office going through his old letters and stories, and was able from that to extract a lot more about him and 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 the little things about life, um, promotions, desires for promotions, desires for promotions for his son, discussions with other judges about their plans for retirement. Um, real recorded in those letters, which I was able to use to to build a much more personal story um, around the Wilkinsons in particular that I needed when I'd finished the book to to, to tie another theme through because I have the, the basic theme of extraterritoriality um, and yeah. just for listeners, I, I try to avoid using the that word in the book because I know it, it's a mouthful, I think it has nine syllables and it's just one of those words that sounds like a loyally word, so I try to avoid using it because... Um, I don't want to put people off, uh, uh, but uh, uh, that's what it was called, unfortunately, and it's it's a, a mouthful. But um, that was the, the big theme, but I needed to try and find some other themes to, 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 to try and bring the, the stories together. And uh, I, I used the Wilkinsons as, as one hook um, to at least give the readers something of, well, what's going to happen with the Wilkinsons as we go forward and, and, and how did their story pan out? Um, uh, it, and it was a very interesting story. I mean, uh, the son of course had ambitions to become the chief justice, just like his father, the father had ambitions for his son to become the chief justice. It never happened, um, for various reasons, which I, I talk about in the book. Um, uh, but just that sort of level of history of being able to go into was was fantastic.
1: Yeah. There's so much more we could talk about, right. And, and yeah. remarkably, we're actually getting to the end of our time. Um, but there's Um, uh, There's so much more. um, So I'll just kind of mark for listeners, these three volumes take us through some major transformations, not just in the kind of systems of extraterritoriality in these different places, not just in the lives of um, these really fascinating figures um, that we trace throughout, but also the consequences of some of these changes um, more broadly. And so the nineteenth century, twentieth century, um, there's so much to find in the books. Now the at the end of the three volume book, You raise a question about the whole project and the history of extraterritoriality as practiced in China, in Korea, and in Japan, and you ask the question, was it gunboat justice or was it a necessary evil? And perhaps as a way of kind of wrapping this up and pointing us to the conclusion, um, we might talk about that a little bit, just in terms of the larger kind of conclusions reached that you'd like to communicate to listeners. Was it gunboat justice or was it a necessary evil? Why does it matter? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, well, it probably was both. I mean, it certainly depends on your view of the world. I mean, as I as I say in the, the conclusion, um, no country would ever agree to extraterritoriality except at the point of um, military pressure um, or possibly economic pressure. I mean, in, in recent years, um, Iraq agreed to extraterritoriality for American servicemen and, and contractors. But again, that was at the point of American guns after the, after the invasion, um, uh, and it was abolished very quickly. Um, at the time, um, at the very early time in the treaty ports, it was not even necess- a necessary evil. I think it was a, a system that worked, and as I said, um, China and Japan didn't really have any opposition to it. Um, to put it in one way, from the Chinese perspective, it's like the foreigners are saying your legal system is barbaric. Um, we can't make our people subject to it. And from the Chinese perspective as well, you're barbarians and we don't want anything to do with you either, so it's fine. And in the very early days, I think it did work well from that perspective. Where it started to break down and where it really created problems was as the number of foreigners in China and Japan increased, and particularly in China, as the foreigners spread out through the country. Missionaries were allowed in to go all over the country. Traders were allowed to go everywhere. Um, the, the, the maritime customs, which had foreigners, and it was all over the the, the sea coast. Anyhow, um, the interactions started to occur between Chinese and foreigners that would lead to court cases, um, not just. Bad interactions, but you know, leasing of property, and then you'd have to have you know court cases over over whether they the lease is valid or people you know should be thrown out um, contractual relationships. Um, but more importantly, and where the real problems came up, murders, and this is where, particularly in China, a little bit in Japan, but particularly in China, there were a number of murders that upset the Chinese very much because a Chinese will be killed by a foreigner. Um, you'd be taken to trial, and in the British courts in particular, taken to trial before a jury uh, of British people, not not Chinese people, um, who would very rarely convict a foreigner of murdering a Chinese. Um, occasionally, convict them of manslaughter, uh, but then you know, this person would then be subject to maybe one or two years in prison. Um, and at the time, the Chinese penalty. And if if the Chinese, if a Chinese killed a foreigner. Um, not only would that person be expected to be killed because under Chinese all that was a penalty, very often there would be mass retribution by the Chinese authorities because that's what they'd have to do. They'd behead a number of people. So it was extremely unfair in the fact that people were subject to different legal systems, and the penalties just didn't seem to um, uh, match the crime to the Chinese. And that's where the major disputes came about. Um, for example, you know, uh, in, in the U.S. court, um, which was established, we didn't really get to talk about it too much, but in the U.S. court, um, a, a doctor uh, uh, was accused of killing a, a, a Tibetan lama out in Tibet, uh, was acquitted, sent the Chinese absolutely crazy. And, and it's right, you know, the, the Chinese magistrate had attended the trial and he said, this is not justice, you know, this this man killed this man. He admits he killed him and, you know, he's been sent back to America completely free. Um, so, you know, this, this is uh, – I was talking about earlier on is, is is why the Chinese talk about this as a century of humiliation. Um, so it was a good thing in the beginning. Um, it was certainly gunboat justice because, you know, again, I was saying if, it was – the treaties were signed at the end of gunboat barrels, um, and the justice systems were kept in place by the gunboats. Um, quite a number of times, the gunboats would be called in to protect the judges of the courts. So Hornby writes about standing on his um, on his uh, porch in uh, Chefu, uh, as it's called now, Chefu. Um, with a shotgun in his hand, waiting for a a, a gunboat to come to scare off protesters. Um, Wilkinson, the son, um, had to call in a gunboat when a Chinese official said to him that if this man's acquitted, I won't be able to control the the mob. Um, And so it was backed, the legal systems were backed by by this. Um, It was, in the end, a necessary evil for a while, but it went on too long, particularly in China. I think in Japan it was perfect, but that's because... Japan reformed, and they had a clear goal, particularly towards the end of, we have to reform our legal system to get rid of extraterritoriality. They succeeded in doing that, and actually the Japanese look back on it as a necessary evil themselves. Their history books um, complain about extraterritoriality, but they don't say it was something we should never agree to. It was It was something that happened, and uh, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction of the book... Um, and, on the 150th anniversary of the British and Japan Treaty, the Japanese foreign minister um, went and gave a speech at the British Foreign Office in London and talking about the friend relations of over 150 years from the signing of this treaties that was signed at you know, the threat of, of war from the Americans. You would never see a Chinese foreign minister go to London you <laughs> celebrate the, 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 the Treaty of Nanking, let alone at the Foreign Office in London. Um, uh, it, it's just... The attitude is entirely different for the Chinese now, in particular the modern the modern narrative in history is this is just bad, um, but it, it wasn't necessarily as bad as they make out. Whereas for the Japanese the narrative to come, this is just a necessary part of our development. Um, what is interesting for me to take it further, I haven't written about this in the book too much because um, it would get too long and it, it, it will off off a little bit of topic, but um, is. Japan China now does seem to be playing for the last 30 years has been using more of the Japanese playbook of let's reform everything our legal systems, our economy and grow strong and they have now grown strong and military strong and you can see so many parallels to the modern growth of Japan to in the late 20th century to the growth of Japan, uh, modern growth of China in the late 20th century to the modern growth of of Japan in the late 19th century. Um, the economic strength leading to military strength leading to um, more aggressive foreign policy. Um, hopefully it will not end up uh, where Japanese aggressive foreign policy ended up with, but people are seriously worried about that.
1: So Doug, now uh, we're sort of coming to the end of our time. There's, of course, a ton of material we didn't have a chance to talk about, and um, this medium can't be a comprehensive account of what's in the book. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? I think so. I mean,
0: I think, uh, and, and as mentioned, we didn't get onto the U.S. court, but I, I've been talking about the British courts. There was a United States court for China set up in um, 1906 um, and the last two volumes that why it ended up being one volume for the 19th century and two volumes for the for the, the 20th century is because I had a lot more material because I started covering two courts the British Supreme Court and the United States Court <laughs> and the story of the United States courts is, is also fascinating um, it's a very interesting time in America. Um, lots of interesting cases, lots of corruption, um, uh, including by a district attorney and other members of the court. Um, but the development of the United States jurisprudence at the time was, was fascinating. Um, There's a, a, a judge, uh, the first judge was um, a narcissist, if to put it in, not nicely, <laughs> um, uh, who uh, sort of tried to trample over rights. He was trying to be like Edmund Hornby and develop a strong legal system. To an extent, he succeeded, but he, he also alienated many people and had to be eventually had to resign. Um, uh, There were some fascinating uh, lawyers there on the American side as well. Um, And I... As, as you mentioned very on, I, I originally was just going to write about the British court, but I realized, um, there was two courts in the common law tradition there. Um, and because Americans and, and British people often interacted, there were cases involving both courts. And the American courts looked very much to the British courts as their, as their guide and their lead. And so it looked to their decisions, um, and, and, and what they did, uh, in their practice of extraterritoriality. So I brought the two together. Um, so, I could tell uh, both stories together, and uh, for uh, listeners in uh, America in particular, um, there is a lot about the 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 u s court in the 20th century, and that was a fascinating story in itself of of, of how that um, th- the Americans dealt with the Chinese as well, which was a little bit better than others They, they did send gunboats in occasionally, but nothing like the other foreign powers america's actually probably the softest power in China, but uh, and Americans try and play now that they were very soft it wasn 't quite that off, but they certainly weren't like the British who were more than willing to use their military power uh, whenever they were threatened.
1: So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you particularly inspired by?
0: Um, I'm working on two things um, in, in, in the history side. I'm also writing some legal things, but I won't bore, bore listeners of that. Um, one is a very simple thing. is When I was writing the book, there was an American lawyer called Norwood Olman. Um, who had a fascinating career. He was a consular officer, a judge of the mixed court in Shanghai, or an assessor of the mixed court in Shanghai, a lawyer in Shanghai, a spy. Um, he worked for the OSS during the war. Um, and eventually he was advocating a third force uh, rather than the Guomindang and the communists in China. Um, he wrote a memoir of his time as in China up to 1943 uh, when he was uh, uh, repatriated after being interned in Hong Kong by the Japanese. Um What I'm doing is annotating that and adding photos to it because it's such a fascinating book. But for a modern reader, without knowing more about the characters mentioned in the book or or knowing um, the city or or the places – While it's a great book, it doesn't give you as much as you want. So I've been working on an annotation and illustration of that book, uh, which should be out later this year, Um, although it's taking me much longer than I thought because uh, it takes you almost as long to annotate a a book like that as it takes to write a chapter because I have to dig back and and find historically accurate information about what was going on. Um, The bigger picture book I'm writing, um, I've been working on for many years but I've got to sit down and nut down on, is about uh, the modern Modern China um, and uh, how it works um, as a country. Um, so, looking at uh, the development of the of the of uh, power in China from 1949 um, and. Explaining for Western readers how China works, um, looking particularly from the legal system because I'm a lawyer, and it, it's, a, it's an angle that most people haven't haven't looked at. Uh, but effect- effectively um, saying, and it's not a it's not a new idea, but trying to explain in in ways that um, uh, a communist system actually operates very much like a large corporation. You have a sort of Politburo, which is the equivalent of a board of directors who sets directions and give orders that are followed down the chain in a top down way. Um, and that was how China operated. And then in the reform, it's sort of trying to break up that, that large conglomerate into more competing entities um, I've been working on that for some time but um, that is my next major project to really sit down and write um, probably out sometime next year if I get my uh, if I get my act together but having Gumbo Justice took me a lot longer to write than I thought it would take, it ended up taking me four years with the uh, writing and editing um, but uh, the other one I, I, hope, I hope I'll get out uh, next year but Shanghai Lawyer will certainly be out this year sometime um, I'm halfway through it and it, it, it should be done pretty quickly.
1: Well Best of luck with those projects, and thanks so much for taking time out of that work to talk with me today.
0: Thank you very much Carla. and I it's the beginning of the day here in Hong Kong I actually have to go off and uh do some of my my y things seeing clients and um and having meetings um uh and uh I'll just say one thing we still wear wigs in court here in Hong Kong so um when I was writing about the barristers and their wigs in, in Shanghai I could think exactly of the, the scenes that play out in court in Hong Kong to this day um including myself in my gowns and my wigs so um uh I could actually bring personal experience of arguing cases in court in, into, into writing it, and I, I love that. But um, thank you very much for taking time for, for, for doing this podcast, thank and, um, uh, and uh, thank you for the, uh, the, the very interesting questions and, and, uh, around the book.
1: Of course, thanks, and, and have fun with the rest of your day. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.